A funeral inscription was found uh, from the early centuries B.C., first century B.C., that celebrated the uniqueness of one particular marriage. It reads uh, this, Uncommon are marriages which last so long, brought to an end by death, not broken apart by divorce, for it was our happy lot that it should be prolonged to the 41st year without estrangement. End quote. That's a, that kind of inscription could very well go on someone's uh, tomb or marker today, and it gives a, an indication of just how rare lasting marriages were in the Roman Empire, just as they are in our own day. I've mentioned to you in the past the statistics, the 50-plus percent divorce rate that still exists in our country, on top of a now 48% rate of people who are cohabitating rather than marrying When you add all those factors together, the failure rate of relationships is staggering in our society. And apparently it was so as well in ancient Corinth and ancient Roman society. There was apparently a a large number of divorces and divorcees even in that. And historical records would certainly seem to indicate that because divorce, if we think that it's easy in our society, it was extremely easy In Roman society, in fact, they had something called a divorce by separation, which simply meant that you could dissolve your own marriage by doing nothing more than leaving or telling your spouse to leave. And then you just notify the authorities afterward. So as you might imagine, divorce, as we said, was very common. It was very acceptable in society. And it would be no surprise to find that in the churches, and in particular the church at Corinth, there would be a number of people who had been divorced. There would have been a number of people prior to their conversion, at the very least, who would have had this in their background. Well, apparently that group is in Paul's mind as he comes to 1 Corinthians 7 and verses 8 through 16, which is our passage for this morning That apparently was in Paul's mind, and this is apparently the group that he was writing to as he addresses this. You remember he had begun this chapter with an answer to one of their questions. They had a slogan, a motto, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, and Paul basically responds to that by saying, yes, but because you guys have such a problem with sexual immorality, and because people have a problem with sexual immorality in general, he says, In verse 2, because of all of that, because the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each her own husband. And he proceeds from there to basically outline the defense of God's design for intimacy and fulfillment in marriage. But that topic, if you will, topic of marriage and the topic of abstinence, leads Paul to raise other issues, whether they're in his own mind or whether they're further questions that these guys had. He raises other issues and And honestly, as you read through chapter 7, you don't always know what's in the background. You don't always know the particular details. Sometimes it's hard to trace all those things out. But the implications of what Paul has to say and and the principles that he lays out here are not difficult to discern. Paul's comments in verses 8 through 16 are primarily aimed at those who are divorced, who are considering divorce, who've been deserted by their spouse, or who are simply dissatisfied in their marriage. 
He kind of has addressed the married people. Now he kind of takes all this other group of people, all of the divorced, all of the deserted, all of the distressed, all of the, 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 the dissatisfied people. He kind of takes all those people now, and now he wants to talk to them. And his message is simple. His message is simple. He's basically going to tell them, you need to realize that no matter what your situation, no matter what your background, you need to realize the potential to serve God right where you are. Right where you are. If you're a widow, if you're a divorcee, if you're someone even in a difficult marriage, his message in this whole section is that God is working and God has a plan in your situation. So you need to realize that there's an opportunity to serve God, whether you're divorced, whether you're deserted, or whether you're even married to an unbeliever, or if you're a believer and you're in a marriage that's dissatisfactorily, you need to understand God's plan for you. Now, before we begin, I just want to take a moment to read this entire passage for you so we can frame it in our context and and kind of understand where Paul's going to go with all this. We'll begin in verse 7, where Paul says this, I wish all of you were as I myself am. But each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate herself from her husband, but if she does... She should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever or, and excuse me, she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if you have, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul has sort of addressed those who are in their marriages and trying to understand God's will for their sexuality and all of that. Well, Paul now turns to this group to speak to all of those who are divorced, deserted, or just dissatisfied in their current relationship. You'll see in verses 7 through 9, the first group that he addresses are those divorced and widowed. He addresses those who are divorced and widowed. He wants them, as well as anyone else, to realize the unique opportunity that they have to serve the Lord. And I think talking about here, when he addresses this in verse 8 to the unmarried and the widows, I think what he's talking to there are the divorcees and the widows. You say, well, why is that? Because he'll come back later in the chapter and talk to those that he calls the virgins. That is the people who've never previously been married. As a matter of fact, this word unmarried, agemos is the word, it literally means unmarried. This word is only used four times in all of Scripture. All four of them are in this chapter. 
And so if you want an understanding of what Paul says, you're going to have to get it from this chapter. And just simply looking at the the chapter and simply looking at the context, it would seem that this word is reserved for those who have been previously married. Down in verse 32, he uses it at one time, but there's not a lot of context there. You have to go down to verse 34, where Paul uses this word in a pair, distinguishing the unmarried or the unmarried woman from the betrothed, or it would be better to translate the virgin, the parthenos. That's why most, uh, most Bible translations translated virgins. That's, that's what it means. It's the person who's never been married. It's the, 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 the sort of traditional single that we think of. And Paul wants to speak to them, but he's still speaking to another group, the unmarried, who are apparently distinct from the virgins. These are, these are two separate groups of people. It really wouldn't make sense. It would be somewhat uh, uh, redundant for Paul to say, hey, I want to talk to the, the, uh, the single people and the virgins. Or I want to talk to the young unmarrieds and the virgins. I mean, that's probably a little bit redundant. When he's saying here, the unmarrieds, he probably has some distinct group in mind. Then again, you look up at, back at verse 8, and Paul's doing essentially the same, same thing. He's using it in a word pair, but he, this time he distinguishes it from the widows. So we immediately get the sense that whoever these unmarried people are, they aren't falling in the class of the widows, and they're not falling in the class of the virgins. There's some other group of people who are unmarried. We probably get our best sense when you look down at verse 10, and Paul writes this. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate, that is to say, she should not divorce from her husband. But if she does, she should remain, what? Unmarried. She's remain unmarried. He's to remain divorced. That's what he's saying there. That's what he's saying. If a woman divorces her husband, let her remain divorced, let her remain unmarried, as the text says, or be reconciled to her husband. So the context of this word and the context of 1 Corinthians 7 would seem to imply that this unmarried person that Paul's talking to in, in verses 7 and 8, this unmarried person refers to a person previously married who's not a widow, therefore a divorcee. Certainly would make sense in that society that he would address these kinds of people first, that he would not necessarily begin the chapter by speaking to the youth or speaking to the young people. He'll do that, as we said, later in the chapter in very specific terms when he talks about the betrothed and the virgins and the congregation. But at this point, he's addressing the a different group, a more mature group, apparently a group of believers who prior to their conversion had experienced divorce. And it's not surprising that this group would be in the church. As we said, it was very common in society. Even the inscription I read to you earlier speaks to that. And when you factor in what he's already said about these people back in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, when he talks about all of their adultery and all of their sin that they came out of, and even in some cases their, their uh, fornication, their homosexuality, all of those things, it's not surprising that out of that group there may very well be a number of divorced people. 
He comes now to speak to all of these people, to the unmarried and to the widows. Now, the interesting thing about all this is that if this is right, if we have done our exegetical work right, if we've done our contextual work right, it's interesting that Paul places himself in that category. I say it's good for them to remain as I am. Or ESV says single as I am. That word single is not in the context. It just says as I am. So Paul apparently classifies himself with this group. And most people conclude that Paul was at one point in his life married. Although obviously at this point he's not. In fact, not only contextually and grammatically do you come to that conclusion by just looking at the words. But historically and culturally it's the same thing. For one reason, Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And we know from historical documents that it was a requirement to be a Pharisee that one be married. In another passage, Acts 26, he, he, he seems to imply that he was a voting member of the Sanhedrin at some point, And he was delegated from the Sanhedrin, taking papers in order to go and have authority to persecute the church. And we also know that in order to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. And so historically, it only makes sense, grammatically it makes sense to conclude that Paul previously at some point in his life was married. We don't necessarily know how that marriage ended. In in all likelihood, it probably ended in some sort of widowhood. Maybe that's why he throws the widows into this equation right here. In fact, uh, mortality rates in things like childbirth were very high in these days, nearly one in every 10 uh, women would die of childbirth. So it could very well be that Paul was previously married, married as a young man and lost his wife in childbirth. We don't know. He, he, he could have possibly obviously been divorced, but it would seem that he would at some point, some reference would be made to that in this whole context. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't classify himself later in the chapter with the virgins. But here he does classify himself with the unmarried. Even his previous statement now in verse 7 is put in this context. And he says, look, I wish all of you were as I myself am. He says in verse 8, it's good for you to remain as I am if you're unmarried or if you're widowed. All of this is, is really expressing Paul's personal desire. His personal desire. In other words, what he says in verse 7, when he says, all of you should remain as I am, that is personal, not moral. He's not saying that it's, it's more spiritual or it's more moral to be single. He's just saying, this is what I say. Well, why do you say that, Pastor? Well, because what he says in the rest of verse 7, each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of the other. This is Paul's opinion, but he immediately says, God hasn't given this to everyone. I mean, I wish that you were this way, but I realize God hasn't given this to everyone. Because Paul understands that his singleness is a gift, but he also understands that marriage is a gift. Someone comes to you and says, well, hey, I got the gift of singleness. I say to them, I've got the gift of marriage. That's what it says, right? Each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of the other. 
And so, so God has called some to marriage just as well as he's called some to singleness. From Paul's perspective, God gives both of these things. But in this context, it is especially poignant that you understand that if you are in this state as an unmarried person, if you're in this state as a widow, as a widower, even if you're in this state as a divorcee, it's so important in this context that you understand this is a gift. God. The gift from God. You say, Pastor, losing my lifelong companion, God taking my husband and taking my wife to death, you, you're telling me that's a gift from God? No, I'm not saying that that's a blessing that any uh, or, or a thing that any person would want to go through or that's a blessing in particular. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is in your present state, your present situation, what you need to realize is that you have now been given time You've now been given an opportunity and perspective that that other people don't have. You say, Pastor, you're telling me that my divorce somehow was something that that was a gift from God? No, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that God would ever want anyone to get divorced. But what I'm saying is, in the present situation where you are right now, you have an opportunity. You have a gift from God in the sense of your singleness. Your, your state of being unmarried. That's what Paul's saying. That's what he's saying. Whatever state you find yourself in, realize that God has a purpose. God has a plan. God has blessings. You're married. You're single. You're widowed. Or if you're divorced. God has a plan. That's Paul's point here. And in fact, that's the point he's going to make throughout the rest of this chapter. You can just go down to verse 17. He says this, Only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Or he says down in verse 20, in another situation, he says, Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord is a, as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a slave of Christ. So he's saying, look, you need to realize no matter what your condition, whether it's married, whether it's widowed, whether it's divorced, whether it's a slave or whether it's a free person, you need to realize that whatever situation you were in when you were called, God has given you unique opportunities, and it's a gift from God. And you need to embrace it for what it is. Instead of going around and asking yourself, why did God do this for, to me? Why am I in this situation? Why is my life so terrible? Realize that God has given you something you need to put to use for Him. God has given you something you need to put to use for Him. But Paul says, Paul says, if you're in this state, he's rejoicing. He wishes, he wishes that you would remain there. In fact, he, he, he will unfold for us, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, in verses 25 through 38, a number of reasons for this. For example, in verses 25, uh, I'm sorry, 25 through 38, he gives a number of reasons. In 25 through 28, he simply says that there was some present crisis going on. Some, as he says at the end of verse uh, 26, there was some present distress. 
Some situation that we don't know about. Some people think there was a rising tension. There was a persecution that was coming uh, uh, to the church. Maybe the maybe the uh, the early signs of Nero's persecution were already on the horizon. We don't know what it is, but there was something uh, in in the temporal situation and the cultural situation in, in Corinth. There was something that Paul says, some present distress that would cause you to want to think twice before you entered into marriage, which is great wisdom for people. It's great wisdom when you're thinking about being married that you think about the kind of stresses and strains and possible temptations and trials that might be in your life. I mean, this is just great wisdom if you're a young person, certainly even if you're an older person and you're considering marriage, to know that you don't necessarily just run out and get married without taking stock of your situation. Paul has another reason, though, in verses 29 through 31. He brings up the temporal nature of this world as another reason. He says in verse 31, it is passing away. That is to say, simply, that that the whole idea of being married uh, needs to be weighed, whether you're a divorced person, whether you're a widowed person, even if you're a single person, all of this needs to be weighed in light of eternity. In light of eternity, in light of the fact that this world so quickly passing away... do you really want to spend your years and days that way? That's what he's saying. You need to weigh it in light of the fact that the world's passing away. And then thirdly, in verses 32 through 35, Paul says he hopes that they would remain unmarried because of the distractions or just honestly distractions in married life. He says, I want you or I wish for you in verse 32 to be free from that. This is the basis of Paul's wish back in verses 7 and 8. He knows that if you're married... There are certain things that you will be restricted from doing. There are certain things that will be, there will be a limitation on you. It's just a reality when you're married, you have to give special attention to your wife or to your husband. And if you're married and have children, you have to give special attention to them. And these can be distractions. I mean, there are certain things that you wouldn't do. Certain things you wouldn't attempt to do if you're married. When I was a young single, I, I went to China and I was going out for a year traveling around this island, going out to the edges of places where people had never heard the gospel. In fact, many places where they never had even seen a white face. I mean, this, I would get on the, the bus with little more than my backpack and, and travel for hours to a place and I would spend a, a month or two there living in in rough conditions, and I would hop on another bus and go to another place, spend another month there. I remember one time I was going from a place, a little place called Ladong, and going up to a, a mountain community named Baisha, and there really was no direct path to get there. There was no main bus route, and so I had to ask the people, I said, how do I get from here to there? And they said, well, you got to get on this, this bus, and you go up to this little village, and then you, you kind of connect with another bus, and it takes you over this village, and then that bus will connect you and take you down there. Whoa. All right. Well, I hopped on the bus with my backpack and I rode up the mountain and uh, got to this little village, small little village way up in the middle of the mountains and hopped off the bus because this was apparently the bus stop. And I, I got there and I was asking around. No one even spoke Chinese. There was a minority group. I mean, no one could even communicate to me. I didn't know if there was a hotel in this little village. I didn't know if I'd stay the night there. I didn't know if the bus was coming. And before long, the whole little village starts to surround me they've never seen anything that looks like me. I mean, my nose is big. My arms are hairy. 
And so here I am standing, and then all these people are surrounding me. I don't understand what they're saying. I'm getting a little bit scared. It's getting dark. And along comes a dump truck. And I thought, well, there's no bus. There is a dump truck. So I asked the people in the dump truck, where are you going? They happened to be going to the town I was going to. So I hopped in the back of the dump truck. And they took off going through the mountains, and we're just whipping back and forth on these little towns, and I'm looking over the edge, and I'm thinking, oh, Lord, protect me. We're going through these, and and after a while, about halfway through the trip, I start to smell some smoke. And I thought, oh, my goodness, the engine's going to burn out, and I'm going to have to walk down this mountain. Well, it wasn't the engine. It was the brakes. And we had just started our descent, and there was no stopping And these guys now were trying to keep this truck on the road. And pretty soon I saw the flames come out from the back tires. And then, in all honesty, the tires burned off. And we were riding on the rims as we coasted, I don't know how long, going down this mountain. And I'm holding on to the back, just praying and asking God to to, to hold on to me, you know. And here I come down, we're coasting, and we come all the way to the stop. And I hop out, and I walk the rest of the way to town. Listen, if you're married... You don't do that, right? <laughs> or if you do, when you get home, you're in a lot of trouble. What he's saying is, look, there's just some things for the sake of the gospel and the sake of the kingdom that when you're married, you can't do. And we understand that. We understand that we got responsibilities and we have stewardship and we have to attend to the needs of our, our spouse and our children and everything. We know all these things. Paul's main point back in verse 7, though, is to realize, look, if you find yourself in this state, the state of singleness, it's a gift. It's a gift no matter how you got there. If you're a widow and God has taken your husband, if you're a widower and God's taken your wife, if you're a divorcee and in some terrible circumstances you find yourself in this place, God hasn't set you on the shelf. God hasn't kicked you to the side. He has a plan. He has a purpose, even in your singleness, to use you. I'm so grateful for particularly the widows in our church. We have some ladies in this church who are a model of servanthood and devotion to the rest of us. I sometimes sit back and wonder, goodness gracious, what would we do if we didn't have these ladies? I mean, they understand, they realize that God has a plan for them even in their widowhood. And they're putting their hand to the task of doing the work of the kingdom. They are a blessing to this church. They're an honor to the Lord. They're a testimony to everyone who sees them. This is what Paul's saying. You need to view your current state this way. You need to see it as a gift from God and use it that way. However, in verse 9, however, If you cannot exercise self-control, or if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. He's continuing to speak here to these unmarried and these widowed people, these apparently previously married people. They're not now. Obviously, they have a desire for marriage because they were married at some point. And he says... That if your desire is so strong, particularly your sexual desire, you should marry. It's just a general principle. If you find yourself single in any way, I mean, if you're young and never married, if you're older 
and, uh, and had been previously married, but still had this desire. If you're, if you're divorced, even if you're widowed, Paul will tell in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he speaks particularly to younger widows. And he says, I desire that they, quote, marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, end quote. He says, look, if you're in this situation and you have this desire, if you find yourself single and your desires are so strong, it is better to marry than to burn with passion. It is better, he says. It's better to do that. It's not a concession. It's not like you're somehow doing something bad. It's not like you're being sinful. In fact, you're being wise. You're being wise to do it. Because Paul knew that if you're there trying to serve the Lord or trying to do whatever you're trying to do and you're constantly burning with passion, you're not, first of all, you're not going to be at very much peace in your own heart and, and you're not going to be very content in your own heart. But not only that, you will be distracted from serving the Lord. If you're constantly battling your own heart and constantly wrestling with discontent and constantly wondering and questioning if God has this for you and then you're wrestling with sexual desire, you're not really accomplishing much in this battle of constant struggle in your own heart for control. The plain and simple truth is it's better to marry than to be in that state. You say, well, but what about my college degree? Or what about my, I was going to put a down payment on a house. I mean, shouldn't I get set into my career and kind of get settled and everything, wouldn't that be much better for me to do all that stuff? No, Paul says it's better to marry than to burn. Better to marry than to burn. I think the reason he says this is because he, more than us, rightly understood struggles, the dangers, sexual immorality. Paul wanted them to weigh, in other words, the, the, maybe some of, the, some of the problems and some of the struggles of, of a swift move to marriage, he wanted them to weigh that equally on the balance scales with the dangers of sexual temptation. I really believe that we lose so much as a church, as a people of God, when young people in particular who have such a strong desire to marry, are continually told to put it off and put it off and put it off. The average age now in the United States is for marriage is in well into the late 20s. And so we sort of, uh, sort of move in that direction without realizing that most of those people have long since participated in sexual immorality. They're getting married later, but they're not, they're not waiting on their desires till later. And yet we, we push our people into this mold and what do they do in the intervening time between the, the time they start to feel this desire and the time that they might eventually get married according to our culture? What do they do with their time? They spend their time chasing one another around. And what Paul's saying is, look, it would be better for you to go ahead and marry and then you guys as a couple serve the Lord, right? Just, just realize that you have a gift, whether you're single or if you're married, it's a gift. And then you get busy figuring out how to use that gift in order to serve the Lord. But it's better, he says, rather than subjecting yourself constantly to this temptation, rather than subjecting yourself constantly to the struggle, it's better that you just go out there and you marry. And you marry in the Lord. And you marry for the purpose of the Lord. Obviously, Paul's primary audience, as we said here, 
aren't necessarily the young people. It's the widows. It's even the divorced people. You need to realize, he says, that God has put you in the state that you're in. You have some opportunities. You have some gifts in terms of your time, in terms of your freedoms. You need to see the potential to uniquely serve the Lord in the singleness where he's given you. But if you're strong, if your desires are strong, it's not a sin. It is equally a gift from God for you to marry. He has purposes for that as well. Now, Paul's just given him this strong encouragement to remarry. But he has to qualify that here by speaking to those who are unmarried or who are divorced illegitimately. Because what he says about running out and remarrying or or following those desires does not apply to them. But we see the next group that Paul addresses here, beginning in verse 10, not only the divorced and the widowed, but then he speaks to the dissatisfied. The dissatisfied. To the married, he says. I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. Wife shouldn't separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. The husband should not divorce his wife. He's primarily referring to married believers here, two believers who are in a marriage, because he will speak in the next few verses about those who are married to unbelievers. Two two groups of dissatisfied marriages here. Those who are in a, a marriage with an unbeliever where the person doesn't support you, they don't encourage you, they don't always understand you. And then those who are married to believers, but equally are somehow dissatisfied and desiring to leave. They want to leave the marriage. And Paul says, you cannot do that. You cannot do that. You cannot separate from them. This word separate, I think I mentioned it earlier, in the context of marriage is always used as divorce. There's no concept here of legal separation like we have in our own society. If you, if you separated, you were divorced. So he says they, they, if they're separated, they either need to remarry or they need to remain as they are. Because what God has joined together, no man is to separate. So Paul's speaking to them here. He's, he's emphasizing them what the Bible's message is clearly from really the very beginning that God hates divorce. In fact, he clarifies in verse 10, I'm giving you this charge, but it really is not me. It is the Lord. He says here, not I, but the Lord. You say, well, why does he throw that in there? He's simply highlighting to them that what he's saying to them, the Lord Jesus himself had already said very clearly. In fact, down in verse 12, when he goes to talk about the people who are married to unbelievers and he'll give them some instruction. And in that point, he says, look, I'm saying this to you, I, not the Lord. He's not saying that what, whatever he says in verses 12 through 14 is not binding. He's just simply saying, look, the Lord didn't specifically address this issue, but I'm addressing it. But here in verse 10, the Lord very specifically addressed it. So he says, it's not even me saying this. The Lord Jesus himself said this in a number of places. Matthew 19, Mark chapter 10, Luke and, and, and John refer to these things. 
Matthew 19, the Pharisees in particular were trying to trip up Jesus and force him into a position that would make him unpopular, either by him contradicting a popular rabbi who said you can divorce for any reason, or on the other hand, him endorsing that rabbi and actually setting himself against the scripture so they have some reason to accuse him. So they kind of try to put him in this dilemma, and when they ask him the question, is it all right for a person to, to divorce someone for any reason at all? Jesus bypasses all of their gimmicks, and he goes right back to God's original design. He says, look, in Genesis, God created them male and female. You say, what does that mean? It means he only, only put two people there. He didn't give them any options. There was no turning back. I mean, you can imagine in 900 years that Adam probably had some less than glamorous days. You can imagine that in 900 years that, uh, you know, the beauty of Eve might have faded a bit somewhere. My wife showed me a picture of Barbie's 50th birthday and uh, they tried to represent a 50-year-old Barbie, you know. We know that in time... We don't always look like we did when we were first married. You can imagine that in 900 years, Adam and Eve probably had some struggles, had some discontentment, had some, some, some thoughts of why in the world did God put me in this relationship with this person? I mean, they were sinners, weren't they? Jesus says, but God created them male and female. In other words, God didn't give them any options. God designed His plan and His purpose would be one man, one woman for life. That's how he answers the Pharisees. Bypasses their silliness. Not only that, he goes on to tell them that in God's design, the two become one flesh. That is to say that there is something that happens when you're together with someone, some, some, some we might say, uh, mystical, we might even say spiritual way. We talked about this back in chapter 6, verse 16, whenever Paul says, even in, in some random affair uh, such as with a, and a prostitute, some very passing and uh, occasional and fleeting moment with a prostitute. He says, even in that situation, you are one flesh. You join yourself to that person, you're, you're, you're uniquely with them. And then in verse 17, he compares it to our oneness together with the Lord. So there's some sort of spiritual, some sort of, some sort of union we can't even really explain, but something is there. So that with this person, you are uniquely one like with no other person there, out there. So Jesus says in Matthew 19, 6, What God therefore has joined together, let no man separate. Let me summarize that for you, what he's basically saying. Marriage is the work of God. Divorce is the work of man. Plain and simple. Marriage is the work of God. Divorce is in all of his various manifestations, has its root in the sin of man. It is some person violating God's design for marriage. That's why it's so ridiculous for two people to say that they are getting divorced because the Lord led them to do that. Marriage is the work of God, divorce is the work of man. This is why Paul wants them to know, just as he said back in verses 7 through 9, that everything he said up to this point about, look, if you have strong desires, if you have strong passions, run out there and marry, he wants to turn around and quickly say to them, it doesn't apply to you. 
If you are married, stay married. And if you have already, for whatever reason, separated, remain single or be reunited to your spouse. You say, well, God has given me this passion and this desire for this other person. And wouldn't it be better for me to just run off and marry them than to burn? And I can just see how, how that person and I, we could serve God together. I mean, we could serve God better than the situation where I'm, a, I'm in now where we're constantly fighting and, and they're actually against me or opposed to me. And, and, and wouldn't it be better for me just to go out there and have that and we would just be free from all the conflict and we could just do so much for the Lord. In fact, we've talked about serving the Lord together. Paul says, no. No. You're married, you stay married. Married, you stay married. You don't leave. And if you leave, you stay single. Or be reconciled. Some will say, but I'm so unhappy. Surely God wants me to be happy. Or they might say, you know, I have, I have this desire in my life, but it's, it's really not for my wife anymore. I mean, it's better to marry than to burn. Or they might even say, you know, I have these desires and, and my wife or my husband or whatever, they're not even fulfilling it. They're an unwilling partner. In all those situations, the answer is still the same. God's desire is that you stay where you are. That's not to say that you do nothing. and It's not to say that you don't seek help to work through whatever kind of conflict might be there. It's not to say that you don't seek counsel, that there aren't opportunities for you to bring someone along to help out in your situation. Or, for that matter, it's not to say that you shouldn't really even examine your own heart to see if perhaps you've lost your focus on the Lord. That really, you're dissatisfied in your marriage because you're dissatisfied with God. That you just don't, you just don't like where God has put you. And that's really at the root of the problem, not your spouse. But Paul's saying to all these people, divorce is not an option for you. Divorce is never commended in Scripture, much less commanded. Nowhere will you ever find a command to divorce. Now, there are... There are reasons there are allowable divorces even as Jesus teaches in Matthew 19:9 there's allowable divorce in the case of adultery as we'll see further down in the text there's allowable divorces for situations like abandonment but really God's design is that even in an unhappy marriage even in a dissatisfied marriage God has a plan right where you are He has a plan right where you are to work through your conflict, to work through your struggles, to find the sanctification in your own life and to find the sanctification perhaps in the life of your spouse. I mean, Hosea is is a great example, right? I mean, here's a guy that the Lord told him to go out and and enter into an unhappy marriage. Told him to go out and and marry a a lady who would abandon him for prostitution. And then after she did that, he told, her, he told Hosea to go out and get her again and bring her back. 
And he did all this because if nothing else took place in Hosea's marriage, if nothing else took place in terms of Hosea's personal satisfaction or even Gomer's personal satisfaction, if nothing else took place in that marriage, God was going to use that unhappy marriage as a way to demonstrate to a watching world what unconditional love looked like. He was just going to demonstrate to all the people outside How that even in a very bad situation, a person can rise above their personal feelings and their personal desires. They can rise above all that and they can show the kind of love that God has shown to them. God has a purpose. He has a purpose where you are. You can serve. You can glorify God even even in a dissatisfied marriage can do it. Paul tells these believers, the Lord has established this principle. The marriage bond is for life. The wife shouldn't separate from her husband. The husband shouldn't separate from her wife. And if she does, she is to remain divorced. Not go to anyone else. This is typical, you know, somebody comes and says, you know, and the situation is so bad. I, I really, I don't have any desire for anybody else. I mean, I just really, I want a divorce. Just no one else out, out there in the picture. Well, listen, you're probably only fooling yourself. You married one time. You'll probably marry again. You're only fooling yourself. The vast majority of people who, who do divorce remarry. These people may have been trying to use that tactic. Maybe they were even using their slogan back in chapter uh, back in verse 1 of chapter 7, you know, it's better not touch a woman. Maybe they're even using that as some sort of super spiritual celibacy principle that they were going to separate, they were going to divorce because they just felt like they needed to be single. Paul says, well, you need to realize if that's the case, you remain single. You've already done this and you've already, you know, taken this step. You need to remain. There's no one else in your life but the one that God has chosen for you. Marriage is not dissolved by illegitimate divorce. Simply put, the principle for believers, married to believers, is for you, there in the struggle where you are, realize that God has given something even there. Something to sanctify you, that He works all things, all things together for your good. The question is, what do you, what do you do if you've already failed? What do you do if maybe somewhere in your past because of some sinful reason, some... Uh, Foolish reason. Maybe because someone even counseled you and said that God was okay with it. What do you do? You've already failed. Well, first step is to confess your sins. Stop fighting it, stop denying it, and just say it was wrong. What happened in my life was wrong. I acted not in accordance with God's will. I acted according to my own foolish and sometimes my own sinful patterns. 
Scripture says, if we confess our sins, the Lord is faithful and just, and He'll forgive you your sins and cleanse you all unrighteousness. Everything. Everything. Nothing beyond His cleansing power. Next, you repent. You repent of your behavior. That is simply to say that if your spouse is free and alive, you should do everything in your power to exclusively seek to reconcile with that person. You should exclusively do everything in your power to reconcile with that person. If your spouse is remarried, obviously that relationship prevents reconciliation. The door has been closed. You can offer to the Lord your willing heart, but you cannot follow through in any way to remarry that person. You are free at that point in your your repentance to remarry. But no matter what your current situation, you need to confess your sins to the Lord. You need to seek His cleansing. You need to have the confidence that God will freely grant it. Will freely bestow it. Look, the bottom line is, the world's not perfect, unfortunately. We each find ourselves in different situations. We each find ourselves in different circumstances. But no matter what your situation, what you need to embrace is that God has given you something. He's given you something. You're married, it's a gift from God. Glorify God in your marriage. You're single, it's a gift from God. No matter how you got there, no matter what state your marriage is in, God has given you an opportunity to serve Him. Your response is simply to obey. I want you to stand together with me and we'll be dismissed in a word of prayer. I want to just encourage you if you're here today and maybe it's not divorce, maybe it's some other sin and there's heavy burden on your heart, you know that you have spurned the Lord, you know that you've strayed from Him, you know that you are not His child and you're here today and and more sensitive to that maybe than you've ever been, I want to encourage you that no matter what your sin God can forgive it, no matter what your past, God can reconcile you to Himself and He can grant you eternal life relationship with Him confess your sins Repent of your sins and turn back to Him. The Lord will receive all those who call on the name of the Lord. He promises to do that. If you'd like to know more from the Word of God about how you can have your sins forgiven, how God has made a plan for you, I'd love to share that with you. I hope that you would find me after the service and just take a few moments together. We can open up the Word of God and just tell you exactly what God has provided for your forgiveness. Father, we're grateful this morning and thankful that you've given us gifts, you've given us opportunities, you've given us a place, whether it's in our marriage and in our home or whether it's in our singleness. Lord, we look back um, even in our past with regrets, realizing that we have missed so much by even foolish choices we've made. We've spurned and forfeited so many of your blessings, but Lord, those are days gone by. Help us to take stock of today, wherever we may be. Take stock of the fact that you've placed us where we are, called us to glorify you, given us opportunity. Help us to take what we have, the gift from you, and use it for your glory.
pray in Christ's name.